Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Okay. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Emily. Today, we're hosting Mahmoud Mamdani, the author of Neither Settler Nor Native, to read from his new book, uh, Neither Settler Nor Native. Uh, He'll be in conversation with Gil Anajar. Uh, Before I introduce them, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books offers curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightbooks.com. And now to introduce our authors today, um, Mahmoud Mamdani is Herbert Lehman, Professor of Government and Professor of Anthropology and of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies at Columbia University and Director of the Maka Ray Ray, is that correct? I have no idea, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Institute of Social Research in Kampala. He is the author of Citizen and Subject, When Victims Become Killers and Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. He's joined today by Gil Anajar of Columbia as well. He is a professor in the Departments of Religion and the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies. Welcome to the both of you. And we're gonna start off with a little excerpt of the book, Neither Settler Nor Native from author Mahmoud Mamdani. Thank you very much. Um, I think it's appropriate that we uh, uh, think of the memory of Lawrence uh, Ferenghetti, the the founder of this bookshop, whom we have lost just recently. Um, So instead of reading uh, uh, excerpts from the book, I decided that uh, I would uh, kind of give an overview of the book, uh, which which can help uh, those of you listening to it to kind of situate it. Um, And it can also put the conversation between Gil and myself in context. So I begin with uh, um, American Indians and African Americans. What is similar? What is different? What's in the name? How should we name the pre-Columbian communities of the Americas? As Indian or as native? The museum in Washington, D.C. is known as the National Museum of the American Indian. It is not known as the National Museum of the Native American. The 1964 Civil Rights Act did not apply to Indians in reservations, but it did to African Americans and other minorities. 
so that a separate Indian Civil Rights Act had to be passed in 1968. The two acts are not the same. The 1964 Act is constitutionally binding, whereas the 1968 Indian Act is only advisory. Reservation Indians are not and have never been rights-bearing citizens of the United States in a constitutional sense. The reservation was a creation of the US. The reservation is a separate polity, separate from the US. The Europeans who came to America were not immigrants, they were settlers. What's the difference? Whether they seek equality or advantage, immigrants come to join existing polities. Settlers come to displace existing polities and establish their own exclusive sovereignty. Indian reservations are not part of the sovereign state we call the US. In the words of Chief Justice John Marshall, writing in mid 19th century, reservations are domestic dependent colonies. Politically, the term Indian tribal sovereignty masks colonial domination. Reservation Indians are legally wards of Congress. Reservation authorities are overseen by a vast federal bureaucracy known as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's no different from the colonial bureaucracy that governed any indirect rule colony in Africa. The Indian reservation was part of a two-state solution, a sovereign state alongside a non-sovereign protectorate. The two-state solution was Lincoln's contribution in the second half of the 19th century. Lincoln claimed to provide a permanent solution for Indians who had survived the genocide. America also originated the notion of differentiated citizenship with only some participating in sovereignty. Until 1921, Indians were nationals, but not citizens. After that, Indians had to be naturalized as citizens, meaning they had first to be purged as members of Indian polities before they could become US citizens. Africans were enslaved individually and then governed in thousands of plantations. Indians were colonized as a people. Colonized Indians and African slaves represent two different strategies of domination with radically different consequences. Reservation Indians and African-Americans do not have the same relationship to the US. Racial and colonial domination are not the same, even if racial discrimination is common to both. Economically, the American Indian symbolized stolen land. The African slave embodied stolen labor. Politically, Indians were governed in a protectorate as part of a two-state solution. African slaves were racially segregated within a one-state polity and governed in separate plantations. Invented in America, the two-state solution was exported to Germany. Whereas Hitler wanted to extinguish all minorities in Germany, post-Holocaust Germany looked for a two-state solution. Instead of reintegrating Jews into Germany, it supported the state exclusively for Jews. The Israelis pushed for their own two-state solution, starting with the Nakba. The Nakba continues today. It is worth noting that South Africa is the place where apartheid tried but failed to press home a two-state solution. 
The one state solution has provided a more suitable political frame for the development of the struggle against Jim Crow and racial domination. A multi-state solution, as in the Indian case, fragmented and isolated the colonized in reservations, which South Africans call Bantustans. Even if it proceeded by fits and starts, sometimes even receded, the one state framework has made possible the development of alliances. The two state solution explains the continued isolation and colonial subjugation of the reservation Indian. I'd like to talk about South Africa. South African settlers attained state independence in 1910. Over the next few years, settlers studied how Indians were governed in North America. Three key elements of the Indian model or the American model were exported to South Africa, homeland, traditional authority, and customary law. First, every tribe must be territorially contained in a homeland. Second, Every homeland must be administered by a homeland authority, sanctioned as trans-historical and traditional, and thus not subject to being elected. Finally, this traditional authority must enforce a customary law on the homeland, also trans-historical and thus unchanging, with one proviso, that custom be excised of all practices or notions that settlers considered repugnant to civilization. Now, South Africa was not the only one to learn from the US. So did Germany and Hitler. Hitler learned that genocide is doable and therefore thinkable, and that it's possible to legislate a hierarchy of citizens, some first class, others second class, and yet others third class, as with Puerto Ricans, African-Americans, and Indian citizens after 1921. Hitler appointed a committee of lawyers to study American citizenship laws as preparation to draft Nuremberg laws for Jews. This learning process has been documented in full by James Q. Whitman of Yale in Hitler's American model. Denazification failed because Nuremberg shut its eyes to the political project that inspired and propelled Nazism. That project was the nation state. Nazism went beyond distinguishing a sovereign majority from non-sovereign minorities. It strove for a purified nation state, one that would cleanse the nation of all minorities. There was an American debate on Nazism after the Second World War. Was Germany liberated or occupied? Was Nazism a state project or a social project? Who should be held responsible for Nazism? The nation or the state? Nazi leaders or the German people. The American consensus was that responsibility for Nazism lay with the German people. At Nuremberg and after, millions were considered criminally culpable, yet Nazism was never probed as a political project. A similar debate unfolded in Germany, particularly among German left intellectuals, the most prominent being Franz Neumann and Herbert Marcuse. Neumann wrote the book, Behemoth. Their answer was that Nazism was a nation state project. 
a project of both the Nazi state and the folk nation to eradicate the state territory of national minorities like Jews and Roma. Nazism was above all a political project. Their conclusion was that to succeed, denazification would have to be a joint project of allies and anti-fascist Germans. But Americans were unwilling to do so. The Soviets were, though only temporarily, and not after the Berlin uprising. I come to Israel and then South African lessons for Israel. Are Jewish people in Israel settlers or immigrants? The Jewish population of Mandate Palestine belong to three groups, natives, immigrants, and settlers. The last being the group that wanted to establish an exclusive state. Palestinians inside Israel cannot participate in sovereignty. They have rights, even political rights, including the right to vote, but they cannot participate in power. Israel is a Jewish state. There is in Israel, Palestine, an ongoing debate on the merits of a one state versus a two state solution. It calls on us to think through the difference between colonial and racial subjugation. Even where racism plagues both in American terms, even where racism plagues both. In American terms, it's the alternative represented by the African slave and the colonized Indian. For a third alternative, we have to look at the South African transition from apartheid. I trace the turning point in anti-apartheid politics in South Africa to the 1970s. Anti-apartheid politics before 1970s reproduced the racialized architecture of apartheid. Each racial group organized separately as defined by apartheid power. Africans as ANC, Indians as Natal Indian Congress, Coloreds as Colored People's Congress, and whites as Congress of Democrats. By reproducing the architecture of apartheid inside the resistance, resistance gave apartheid a natural flavor. The apartheid mindset was broken only in the 1970s. The key initiative came from the student movement, starting when black students led by Biko left the liberal white student organization formed their own separate body and went on to organize township dwellers, starting with Soweto. Left in the wilderness, radical white students turned to organizing hostile workers on the fringes of townships. Out of this experience was born an epistemological awakening that white and black are political identities and that political identity is historical, not natural. Black, said Biko, is not a color, if you're oppressed, you're black. This was also the turning point in the Africana journey from being junior partners of British colonialism to becoming a part of the anti-apartheid coalition. Born in, the 19, born in the 1970s and 80s, the South African moment signified three epistemological shifts. From mobilizing opposition to apartheid, it went on to champion an alternative to apartheid. From calling for a state of the majority, the national majority, the black majority, it went on to champion a state for all. Initially, not just all citizens, but all residents. From an opposition to whites, it went on to oppose white power. 
it depoliticized race and historicized the notion of majority and minority. 1994 led to the birth of a new political community. This outcome should be seen as an alternative to Nuremberg, which opened the gate to two purified states, Germany without Jews and an Israel without Palestinians. The anti-apartheid struggle was not directed from a single center, but from multiple centers. Sometimes it included contradictory initiatives. Take the example of the anti-apartheid boycott, which was directed from outside the country and the internal political struggle, which demanded reform of the political process to allow the oppressed to exercise the right to participate in that political process. Whereas the anti-apartheid boycott made no distinction between South African state and society, calling for a boycott of both, the internal political struggle proceeded by building alliances with all sectors of white society so long as they did not openly and actively support the apartheid state. Apartheid power was not defeated, neither did apartheid win. The situation in the mid 1980s could only be described as a stalemate. Why then did apartheid power agree to negotiate in 1990? Two considerations made captains of apartheid rethink their primary reliance on a military strategy. One, the possibility that anti-apartheid mobilization may spread from the townships to Bantustans. But more important was the second possibility, one that signaled the likelihood of an even more scary outcome. Boers realized that the hitherto pro-apartheid Boer intelligentsia was gradually beginning to abandon apartheid as a state project. Finally, lessons for Palestinians. The Palestinian population is today fragmented into three, colonized citizens of Israel, residents of the occupied territories, and refugees. Since 1948, each has been the source of a different political initiative. Refugees were the social base of the armed struggle. The first intifada moved the social base of Palestinian resistance from refugees to Israel-Palestine. The second intifada propelled Balad into calling for an inclusion of Palestinians in the political process, calling for a state of all citizens. After that came BDS. Anchored in the occupied territories, BDS called for an external boycott asking the world to divest from Israel. The South African lesson is that we need to rethink the liberation project as political and not just as moral. In Palestine, this means building on the gains of Balad and adopting a political strategy that will welcome anti-Zionist and non-Zionist Jews into the larger movement for a de-Zionization of the Israeli state. Rather than think of Balad and BDS as representing strategic alternatives, the South African lesson is to embrace both as standing for complementary strategies, external and internal. The lesson of the African-American struggle is to build alliances within a single state so as to forestall the fragmentation, isolation, and continued colonization as has happened to Indians in North America. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Mahmoud. Um, it's really great to listen to you 
um, provide us with uh, uh, an account of the book, um, which I should say um, uh, does not um, include all the uh, all the breadth, in fact, uh, of the book. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you did not mention uh, uh, in your introductory remarks, you did not mention South Sudan. And um, one of the things that uh, that continues to stay with me as we are having those conversations and as uh, I keep revisiting the book is um, is something that I think you you have um, corrected me in the past, but I nonetheless want to insist would be a productive misreading, which is that by by arguing that the beginning of the modern state is not in Westphalia, but in 1492, you are not only asking us to rethink the colonial state, right, but in its racial and colonial dimension and the distinction that you make there, but you are, and as well as by invoking the majority minority dynamic, um, you are actually asking us to rethink the, the modern state, right, as, as such. And um, invoking the example of Germany, for which the uh, um, the categorization of Nazi Germany as colonial is both accurate and inaccurate, particularly with regard to the Jews, right? Um, I do think that there's a strong argument to be made to, to, to suggest that it is the modern state in the division between majority and minority, um, which uh, sediments a violence that may or may not be extreme, may or may not be remembered, uh, in you know after Renan, for example, but nonetheless is there and is at play, and um, and that the implications of uh, of what you're asking us to do to rethink political community in in a different relationship to territory, for example, is uh, um, is something that has uh, uh, very broad implications, right? Obviously, for all the places you um, you take as your case studies, but I think for a, 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 a broader uh, thinking of politics and what does it mean to uh, constitute a collective self, right? And to maintain it, obviously, uh, by way of participatory democracy, etc. Um, so, having said that. Uh, um, and not necessarily to push you in that direction, uh, given the um, number of conversations um, uh, you have had since the publication of the book, I did want, and you and I have joked a little bit about the fact that, you know, I am one of those people who keeps asking you, why didn't you write another book? Uh, which I don't think is entirely fair because I do like the book as it is. Uh, um, but, um, but people surely have been pressing you in all kinds of directions. I wanted to give you an opportunity actually, after all these conversations, given the time that has passed, um, to say maybe something about what you, would have wanted to do different now that you have listened to misunderstandings, misreadings, challenging questions, um, um, you know, uh, conversations. Is there something, is there a way you would want to reimagine the book? Um, minute or, or major, it doesn't have to be, uh, but yeah, that, that I guess is my first question. Well, good, thank you. Um, uh, this is a, a provocative question, um, an open question. Uh, 
And a question that uh, may be slightly premature. Mm. Uh, the book just came out in November. Um, so I will give you a premature answer. Um, one thing that, uh, that I think I would do differently is I would write a different introduction. Mm. Uh, the present introduction of the book is uh, uh, more academic than political. Uh, academic in the sense that it uh, uh, very faithfully uh, gives us a genealogy uh, of, uh, of uh, both a narration of political events, but also a genealogy uh, of, of uh, the discursive terrain, uh, the, 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 the debates on, on how to understand colonized minorities, um, and then the discussions taken by various uh, international bodies, etc. Um, I would have written a much shorter introduction. Uh, I would have written an introduction more in line with the kind of overview I just gave, uh, which which does not, uh, uh, which kind of reflects on on the book, um, and not just says that this is what I'm going to do, uh, and then and then do it, or or gives a prehistory uh, of what I'm going to do. Mm. So that's one thing I would have. I could have done differently. Mm. Second thing I could have done differently is I think I would have written the chapter on Sudan um, as a different chapter. I would have written it because Sudan is important. Sudan provides us the most elaborate case uh, of the, uh, the epistemology uh, of the colonial project as, as it learns from its crises in mid 19th century. Um, and as it moves beyond the Lockean division uh, of majority and minority uh, as different religious communities to now take this difference uh, and, and, and underwrite it uh, through the whole of humanity, move from religion to other kinds of differences, uh, whether it is uh, race, whether it's tribe, um, and and I would have I would have uh, rewritten the Sudan chapter to sort of forefront uh, uh, how. Uh, the British imperial power uh, put these lessons uh, into statecraft uh, and into practice in 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 Sudan, and and how that laid the groundwork for kind of a very derivative politics in Sudan. The way you had a derivative politics in South Africa with the formation of an ANC. Uh, and, and an Indian, Natal Indian Congress and a colored people Congress and so on. Um, and, and how the only questioning of that was John Garant. Um, 
and, and how this derivative politics was reproduced in South Sudan, giving us two states, two state solution, a state for the Arabs, a state for the Africans. And then of course the African state becoming a federation of different tribal uh, uh, autonomies in a way. Uh, I would have, I would have uh, uh, also, you know, re redone the, the Sudan chapter and thereby also shortened it somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I would have probably written a book less than 400 pages, maybe 350, something like that. Um, that's, that's my current thinking. I said it's premature because as we keep on talking and as there are more engagements, uh, I, I, I would, I would, uh, I would do more. Thirdly, of course, yes, thirdly, thirdly, I would forefront uh, the, the African-American, the contrast between the African-American and Indian experiences uh, as, as a lesson in the difference between one state and two state solutions. That's really great. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, um, it's interesting that my uh, uh, my next question actually was going to be um, in reaction to the conversation you had uh, last week at the Institute for Palestine Studies with Rana Barakat, who uh, where you um, um, you in fact brought up the question of African American uh, politics as uh, uh, as one of the elements which, unless I'm mistaken, does not entirely come out in the book, at least not in the way you phrased it uh, last week. And I want to contextualize this by saying that, uh, um, you know, the, the first book of yours that I read uh, was not citizen and subject, but it was when victims become killers. And and one of the, uh, one of the, in the early pages, one of the, I think it's in the early pages, one of the things that um, really, Re, re, uh, completely uh, um, uh, re, redid my thinking was when you um, when you speak of uh, of Nazi Germany and speak about the aftermath. Uh, a point you you have made uh, today as well is that um, there was a possibility that really never materialized of uh, of uh, of um, German Jews asking for political political compensation in Germany, for political representation in Germany, rather than for a two-state solution that would actually take them to Palestine. And, um, and last week, you made a comparison, and I do want to emphasize that it wasn't entirely clear in the context of the conversation, to me at least, um, whether the comparison um, that you were bringing up with African American politics was actually uh, supposed to be pertinent for um, for uh, the for the Jews or for the Palestinians, and um, I just quickly says said that what you said last week was that Marcus Garvey said that the solution to the African American problem um, was in fact to go back to Africa. Right, with all the colonial civilizing implications of that project and all the failure of that project in Liberia. Uh, um, um, uh, among, other, uh, uh, among two places, and I, uh, I'm blanking out right now on the second place, uh, Sierra Leone. Um, and, and the second solution 
right? The second political project is Du Bois project, which, um, which says, no, African-Americans uh, must be liberated uh, uh, and find political emancipation right here in the United States. Um, and, um, and of course that suggests if one takes the Jews as a paladin, one, uh, one is reminded of precisely the, the, the point whereby Jews should have demanded political uh, 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 citizen, uh, civic, political and civic rights in Germany after the war, precisely that which the Nazis wanted to deny them and did deny them. Um, so I want to invite you to, to say more about this, actually, what would it mean? And I think Rana um, um, took your point in, in her response to actually be pertinent for Palestinians. And so one question is, well, what, what do you think the parallel Right, since uh, since much of your argument is that the the um, the Indian in um, in the United States, right, constitutes the site of the two two state solution, um, as opposed to the African American. And so, what what would it mean to take the African American examples, right? There are at least two um, as pertinent both for the Jews and for the Palestinians, perhaps for both. And what exactly would that mean? And I want to ask this at this particular moment where one might, without going back to Garvey, one might ask whether the, the situation in which African-Americans find themselves today in America would not potentially signify a certain failure of the Du Bois project, of the possibility of political emancipation and political, uh, of forging a political collective um, right here. Um, right, what implications, uh, since I, I can think of a number of Jews who would say, well, uh, um, but, you know, in, in exile, Jews were uh, at the mercy of, uh, um, of political violence, and therefore they need to have their own state in order to be protected for them from that violence. Whether or not that worked is, of course, another matter. But, uh, um, but so I, I wanted you to say more about the African-American parallel that you, you uh, made last week. And since you said that you would have perhaps foregrounded it, perhaps you can say a little more about that. Well, I, uh, thank you, thank you. Um, I think the, uh, the, the, the debate uh, the political contest uh, amongst the African Americans uh, was really it can be it can be uh, uh, re-narrated uh, uh, as as a as a debate about uh, two options one state solution or two state solution. Mm -hmm. um, Marcus Garvey stood for a two state solution. Um, uh, let my people go. Mm -hmm. um, and Du Bois stood for a one-state solution, let my people stay. Um, and, and what I'm saying is basically that there is a lesson for both Jews and Palestinians here, which is that the two-state solution is a non-solution. It's a non-solution which constantly calls for its own reproduction by creating a further two-state solution for the minorities its own state generates within its country. Um, 
Now you've 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 talked uh, about about uh, uh, what happened to this two two state solution uh, uh, with Marcus Garvey and um, back back to Africa uh, that that they they ended up creating a, a creating a state for African Americans not not reintegrating themselves inside the political community that communities that existed in Africa, but creating like settlers anywhere, a separate political community for themselves, mm -hmm. Liberia, Sierra Leone, and in the process, therefore, creating a minority, or really num numerically a majority, but politically a minority, um, creating, creating a, 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 a colonized minority um, and therefore the basis for uh, a struggle for whether a two state or a one state mm -hmm. solution by that by that minority um, there were others who i mean following the failure of the liberia project uh, there were those who thought that uh, the two state solution should be within the us uh, that there should be a black republic uh, somewhere in the south where, where, where black people were a majority. Uh, and, and that would have given you a minority of uh, people not defined as black at that time. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not sure I entirely agree with you that the situation in which African-Americans find themselves today uh, constitutes a failure of the Du Bois project. Uh, I think it constitutes a success mm. uh, of the Du Bois project. Uh, because look at what has happened with Black Lives Matter. Look at the scale uh, of demonstrations that took place across the United States, including in communities and small towns where there were hardly any African-Americans. Black Lives Matter became a flag uh, for, for a movement of, for change, a, a movement against racism. Uh, and it was no longer just an African-American movement. Um, I mean, what has emerged under Black Lives Matter is a multiracial movement within the US. And it's, this, it's that fact which has split American society, you can say down the middle, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, because it hasn't split it, 85%, 15%, okay? It has split it down the middle, it has split the white community uh, uh, also. Um, so this is, uh, this is obviously not the destination. Uh, I don't know where we're going, but but this is, uh, uh, it looks a promising, promising way uh, to whatever the destination turns out to be. 
I mean, uh, um, I, I I don't know that I'm actually trying to voice my my own perspective here. I, I um, but but I'm I'm thinking and I, I'm I'm trying to uh, to think together with you about the the product the productive dimension of the parallels that you propose, right? And and and, and as you do your comparative work, you're not simply saying it's everywhere the same. You you are asking us to 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 think productively with with the differences as well. But, um, but I'm kind of wondering um, um, what, given that this is 2021, um, to assert that Black Lives Matter is a vindication of the Du Bois project is nonetheless to mark the time that it has taken to achieve a sense that the, the white settler community is split in two on the issue of equal rights of equal rights. Um, and I, I completely agree that this is a moment to be uh, um, to some extent optimistic, but I'm also wondering what the effect of, of saying, um, of, of pointing to Liberia as an example to hold to, uh, to, to Israel, right? And to the, the Zionist project and to say, look what happened, look at this failure wasn't the Du Bois alternative of imagining a Jewish political project that would be right here, say in Germany, among other places, um, whether, whether uh, or in the United States, and whether that would actually be convincing by pointing to the African-American uh, trajectory. That, that I suppose is what I'm, I, I'm asking, or, or whether the, the, the kind of political labor that you are pointing to is, is in fact, um, uh, really, uh, um, we're, we're talking about centuries of, 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 of labor. Uh, and that uh, since, since, since it is about forging a political collective, um, centuries seems like a, a long time for the forging, as necessary, as unavoidable it might, as it may be. Um, and perhaps as a, as a follow-up question, because I, I, I do think that they are connected. Um, one of the things, as I, as I read the manuscript, I think I, I kept asking you about the, the regional dimension of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, that I've learned from you in so much of your work, which can be uh, said to be recast in this particular book as in fact being almost global, right? Again, the geographical reach uh, being what it is. But I'm wondering, uh, uh, given the, 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 the detachment that you um, propose between the collective, the political collective and the territory, right? A homeland and not a nation state. Um, what happens to the region in Israel-Palestine, given the state of the region and, and, and given the possibility of forging again, or, or at least the, the desire, the wish, to forge a political collective, collective that would be of a different sort, that would have a different project. Um, what happens to territory uh, uh, in this context, right? Given the proximity of Syria, given the, uh, you know, proximity of things being relative, uh, I mean, the proximity of Lebanon, the proximity of things being relative of Iraq. Um, uh, is, is there, um, is there a, a kind of lingering dimension to the closer regional thinking that you have otherwise habituated us to 
uh, that may be at work, right? Because when, they, when, when Du Bois say, we stay right here, the, the territorial dimension is not a question, right? The United States has already established its borders as it were, you know, give or take a few colonial invasions and, 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 and uh, territories, but, um, but the territory is not in question. Whereas in Palestine, the territory could be said to be in question, if only because it is so fragile and fragilized uh, elsewhere, Sykes-Picot and, and all that. Um, do you have thoughts on that? Well, um, once you go for a two-state solution, whether in the US or in the Middle East, territory is always in question, okay? Because you, you're talking of uh, founding another state, whether for victims or for perpetrators, okay? But you, you're talking of separating the two. Um, so with every two-state solution, uh, territory was always in question. Mm -hmm. um, so I... I um, I mean, I, I agree with you when you say uh, that the, the parallels I propose should be understood uh, not as a model, uh, because things are not the same everywhere. Uh, but, but the parallels are a way to think productively with the differences too, and not just borrow things. Um, so I use the language of lessons. Uh, I, I, I don't think I ever talk of models. Um, so Liberia, I mean, look, uh, African-Americans were slaves uh, 150 years ago, right? In the US. Uh, Jews were not slaves in the U.S. At one point or another, both went for a two-state solution. African-Americans, a state carved out in Africa. Jews, a state carved out in Eretz Israel. Um, the African-American project was abandoned. The Zionist project is still very much there. Mm -hmm. Some people think it's there because instead of having to face hostility from the US, it had the opposite which was initially full support from Britain, then full support from the US. But I think, I think you know, maybe we should uh, also look at uh, New York City. New York City is, 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 is another future. Uh, New York City is almost like a homeland. Mm -hmm. uh, for Jews. Uh, it's a Jewish homeland without a Jewish state. Uh, 
and, and some lessons need to be drawn from that uh, is, is, is really the longevity and the stability of a homeland like that where you do not displace everybody else by creating a, an exclusive state of your own. And therefore, you're not calling for an exclusive homeland. Mm -hmm. You're willing to share the homeland in return for security. Uh, I think New York City needs to be looked at. I mean, New York City is, uh, from this point of view, a, a shining city on the hill. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the regional dimension, of course, yeah, I mean, look, you're right. Uh, the, the, the region is carved up into so many nation states, each with its own set of minorities mm -hmm. and each with its own internal uh, uh, powder keg in a way. Um, and, and of course, yeah, it's, it's, it's something new. Um, and, uh, and, and, and needs to be uh, uh, thought of uh, uh, in its own terms. Mm -hmm. um, that's all I can say about the regional situation right now. Um, this is great. I mean, uh, uh, um, I, I, I really agree with you and I, I, you know, I wish we had more time actually to, uh, um, uh, for me to push you uh, uh, in, in order to help uh, mean, uh, think more about the fact that there is uh, a, a political project that actually has not been theorized or even formulated um, for Jews in exile, um, Jews in the diaspora, and, and New York City is a, is a very good name for it. Um, and I think that to theorize it in terms of not so much a resistance, uh, uh, but an unspoken resistance, to, um, uh, to the Zionist project, which otherwise presents itself as an exclusive um, solution. Um, it is certainly uh, very rich and, uh, um, and uh, you know, may, may, maybe at some point you can write a book about that. Um, I think we, we have to be mindful of time now. Um, yeah, one more question. Um, well, um, so I suppose the, the, the last question uh, uh, taking us in, in a slightly different direction because one of the uh, one of the important elements obviously of the book is um, a way of uh, uh, sedimentation institutionalization of extreme violence right of of uh, um, of both a, a colonial and racial division um, right for which uh, the case of uh, of Sudan is obviously. Uh, very important, as you were explaining to us, um, but also because of what you were saying about the distinction to be made between the Nuremberg uh, victim-perpetrator uh, sedimentation, right, with majority and minority are also sedimented around that kind of history of violence. Um, and I... Uh, um, I suppose I want to... Uh, to uh, uh, as opposed to the... Um, to the South African moment, which in fact tries to transcend um, the perpetrator victim, uh, right, for uh, uh, an identity of, of survivor. I suppose my question is, 
what happens if the violence is not remembered? What happens uh, um, if the violence is actually denied, right? Which is one of the, uh, one of the uh, certainly powerful gestures of the Israeli state, right? That the Nakba did not happen, right? Even when they're here and there recognition, but that the, the um, and certainly that the Nakba is not happening, as you were saying, of course, the Nakba is not just a past moment, but it is an enduring moment. What happens when the violence is erased, as it were? And what happens then to the, the, the two models, um, the two lessons, the Nuremberg and the South African? Well, um, so I, I, I write about extreme violence by contrasting Nuremberg and, uh, and South Africa, uh, two different ways of uh, thinking of extreme violence, uh, but also inside South Africa, there are two different ways of thinking of it. Uh, it is thought differently in the Kempton Park negotiations and it is thought differently by the TRC. Uh, the TRC mimics Nuremberg. Uh, like Nuremberg, it holds, it tries to identify perpetrators, holds them to account, but not to punish them, to forgive them. Okay. Um, so my first concern was that, uh, what, is, what does the Nuremberg model do? Because it seemed to me it does two things. One, at the individual level, uh, identify perpetrators, even millions of them. It was a million plus in Germany, right? That's what Eisenhower said. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and to individually hold them accountable, individually punish them, uh, but also besides punishing them, disenfranchise them. They are disenfranchised in the political community. The disenfranchisement of perpetrators goes alongside the refusal to consider the state responsible for violence. Only agents of the state may be considered responsible for the violence because criminal violence is always against the state. So this kind of twofold result so you have no possibility of rethinking the state. You have no possibility of thinking through the political project which resulted in this kind of violence. Um, if you are interested in that, you have to think of the violence as political, not as criminal. You have to, if you want to think of state violence, you have to think of the violence as political and move your gaze away from individual perpetrators to collective constituencies which drive the violence. Now, what if the violence is denied? What if it is not remembered? Well, you can see the consequences in, uh, in, in Israel, Palestine. The Holocaust is remembered, must never be forgotten, so that the memorialization of the Holocaust is a state project. And the other side of that state project is that the Nakba never existed. Right? But the Nakba is memorialized. 
by the Palestinian people. Um, the Nakba is memorialized as part of a historical, political, moral resource to recreate a political community. Whether one state or two state, it's not a settled question. Um, so in one case, you freeze, freeze a past moment. That's the state memorialization, whether of the Holocaust in Israel or of the 1994 genocide. Um, and and you, you freeze it. Uh, and really, its result is to to disenfranchise those who you think of likely perpetrators in in the in the next Holocaust. Mm -hmm. right. Problem. Thank you, Mahmoud. This was a really great conversation, and I I hope it gives uh, people a sense of uh, of the richness and uh, range of uh, of the book and the questions it opens. Thank you. Thank you, Gil, as always. Uh, every time you bring out in me something which I didn't think was there. Uh, I mean, a thought, a thought which, and, and it seems so easy, but then I realized that uh, it won't be easy if you're not there. <laughs> Thank you both so much for joining us today. That was so great. Again, we were talking about uh, Dr. Mamdani's book, Neither Settler Nor Native, and he was joined by Gil and Ajar, is such a great conversation to listen in on, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, you can find the book uh, via our website or in person at skylightbooks.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Skylight Books. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.